it's not just about like, can you carry a pregnancy to term and have a baby with like 10 fingers and 10 toes? Like I'm thinking about long-term function. Hi, and welcome to the Mastering Your Fertility podcast. This show is all about reclaiming health, enhancing fertility, and preparing for pregnancy. We're Kristen Cornett and Dr. Haley Nye, your hosts and the creators of the online fertility platform, Tiny Feet. Thanks so much for being here today. We have a very exciting show for you. We'd like to start by asking that if you've been enjoying our show and the information we've been sharing, that you consider giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast listening app. These really do help boost the podcast and get it to more people. You're listening to episode 15, where we're going to be interviewing real food dietitian and best-selling author, Lily Nichols. She's going to help us understand what foods we should be eating when trying to conceive and while pregnant, why the current nutrition recommendations we receive are not always based on the best available evidence, and how we can make changes to protect the health of our future children all the way into adulthood. We also spend time talking about the specific fertility and pregnancy nutrients that are often missing from our diets and why a vegan diet should be seriously reconsidered for those who are trying to conceive or are already pregnant. Before we get started on the interview, we'd like to share a free resource that we created for you. If you're currently trying to conceive or thinking of trying within the next year, this is the absolute best time to start taking charge of your health to support your fertility and the health of your future baby. Our free fertility recovery guide helps you do exactly that by giving you five actionable steps that you can take starting right now to adjust your diet and lifestyle to get ready for a healthy conception and pregnancy. So without further ado, we're going to introduce our guest today. Lily Nichols is a registered dietitian nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Drawing from the current scientific literature and the wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course of the same name, presents a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Her unique approach has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, mostly without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, is an evidence-based look at the gap between conventional prenatal nutrition guidelines and what's optimal for mother and baby. With over 930 citations, this is the most comprehensive text on prenatal nutrition to date. Lily is also creator of the popular blog, www.lilynicholsrdn.com, which explores a variety of topics related to real food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. In addition to her website, you can also find Lily on Instagram at lilynicholsrdn, and you can find both of her books on Amazon. We have links to her books, website, and social media here in the show notes. All right. Welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, I'm really excited to be on. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about how you got started working in prenatal nutrition? Yeah, so I've been in the prenatal nutrition world in some way or another um, since I pretty much since I became a registered dietitian. So I've worked in many different roles from public policy with the state of California on their gestational diabetes policy to clinical practice, a lot of consulting work and research. And in all of these roles, it became clear that, you know, the conventional prenatal dietary advice, like the U.S. government dietary guidelines, doesn't necessarily reflect the latest scientific evidence. 
um, nor do those recommendations tend to work well in practice in terms of like reducing negative outcomes from pregnancy. Um, particularly early in my career, a lot of my work was in gestational diabetes. So, uh, you know, I'd, I'd give the standard dietary advice, the goal is to help them control their blood sugar better, and then it would fail like half the time or sometimes worse. Sometimes my client's blood sugar would actually get worse after taking in that advice. So it really led me to just question like why our guidelines are what they are. Are they actually evidence-based? Could we do better? Could we incorporate more nutrient-dense foods in the way that traditional cultures have done for centuries? You know, where can we improve? Um, and that's really what my work is about now. Yeah. So you started implementing some of some differences from the conventional advice while you were still working in clinical practice with mm -hmm. GDM. Absolutely. Yes. And so that kind of inspired you to eventually write your first book, which was Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So the whole premise of that book was really you know, the, the initial area of, of prenatal nutrition policy that felt off um, when it comes to gestational diabetes was the level of carbohydrates that's recommended, which is pretty high. And when you think about what gestational diabetes is, just high blood sugar during pregnancy, or in other words, carbohydrate intolerance is a, is a valid and accurate way to describe this diagnosis. It, it didn't make sense to me that we were pushing a diet that was so high in carbohydrates when their bodies clearly can't handle it. Um, and then from there, it kind of snowballed. So you start looking at, you know, the protein requirements. Are those evidence-based? Well, you know, we have new data from 2015 showing that they actually significantly underestimated the protein needs in pregnancy. Okay, what about micronutrients? Where, like, where do we go with here? Oh, wait, they underestimated the needs for B12. Oh, wait, they underestimated the needs for choline. Oh, wait, they underestimated the needs for vitamin D. I mean, it just goes on and on. And then for me, I'm always looking at, you know, where do we find these nutrients in food so we can try to match the nutritional requirements from diet as much as possible with, you know, minimal reliance on supplements. Absolutely. That's, we're all about real food here too. I think it's so incredible that you've had the, um, the skepticism and the curiosity to keep digging on these topics. I mean, that's so helpful for women to be able to have access to this kind of information when all they're really receiving is conventional dietary advice. So to have you kind of digging deeper and providing some of that is so valuable in this field. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's been well received and people appreciate the science and the work that that all goes into it because I know for a lot of people it's like I had some friends that have had published books they're like oh I've heard that people don't really want the references I was like I, I don't know I mean I think there's a subset of people who do want the references so I'm just gonna include them even though this is way more work on my part because you can't go against guidelines without having evidence to back your case then you just look like a crazy person. <laughs> so well, absolutely. And I think know, if those references were in there. Yeah. I mean, I think if those references were missing from the book, it, you know, you might not have had, especially with real food for pregnancy, the success that you've had, you know, that currently being used as basically a textbook in the midwifery program at a major naturopathic university here in the US. I mean, we kind of need that evidence to back all that up to start exactly. changing how we're educating practitioners in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. 
So tell us about where Real Food for Pregnancy came from. When did you decide to write this? Kind of what was the major motivation besides just kind of putting this information out there further? Um, why this book and why this particular time? So I started actually getting asked to write a book on general prenatal nutrition pretty soon after I released my first book, the one on gestational diabetes. And, you know, to be honest, I didn't expect that book to make much of a splash. It was just like, I got to get this information out here because everything I hear from clients or read in like online support forums is just the most terrible dietary advice I've ever heard. And it just like hurts my soul. And I know <laughs> that we can reduce the amount, the reliance that a lot of these women have on medication and insulin. And we have like a good solid data from research, not just my clinical experience, but we can cut the number of women who require insulin in half just by giving better lower glycemic dietary advice for gestational diabetes. So it was like, it felt like a duty to, to put the information out there more than anything. But what was surprising to me was how many practitioners reached out to me saying, you know, I, I love the information in here. I want to give this, this book to all of my clients, but like it says gestational diabetes on it. And that's all about blood sugar, but it seems like this same style of eating would be beneficial to everyone. I was like, well, yes, of course. You know, so then their question is like, do you have a book on that? And the answer is no. And like, do you have a recommendation? So I started looking at what was available on the market and it, I felt like the books either fell into one of two categories. One was just rehashing the conventional guidelines, you know, focusing on like foods to avoid, you need to eat lots of carbohydrates, like just watered down, not necessarily evidence-based information. Or it was like on the other end of the spectrum, like different than the guidelines, but with some recommendations that might be a little bit out there and they didn't necessarily back anything that they said with data. And so I was like, I don't feel comfortable recommending that either. So I knew I had to write a book on, on like general, I want to say general prenatal nutrition because it's like not gestational diabetes specific, but I say general, but I also mean like very specific, <laughs> you know, I wanted to write a really detailed book on prenatal nutrition. It was just a matter of finding the right time. And uh, so I, I was pregnant when I decided like, oh, I, I guess I really need to write this book. Um, but there was no chance I was going to be writing a book when I was pregnant. So I didn't start writing it until my son was about uh, 10 months old, um, which had its own set of challenges trying to write a book with like a, a baby turned toddler. But um, it was a labor of love for sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Haley can relate to taking on a big project when uh, having a young child because we started Tiny Feet when Aspen was how old? Five months old. Five months. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's just a lot with, with a baby. <laughs> it really is. Um, I was also listening to another interview that you did that saying that you started writing your book when you had childcare for only 12 hours out of the week. Yeah. Nine hours actually <laughs> when I first started. Nine yeah. Hours. And yeah. so, yeah, it my jaw just dropped when I heard that. I was like, okay, if she can do this, <laughs> I have no excuses. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, props to you for taking something like that on. I don't think I had the brain power back and like I don't think I had recovered any sort of sleep debt by 5 months to to be able to <laughs> to think about writing something or taking on a big project. But, you know, yeah, that postpartum recovery time is uh 
It's a, it's a transition for sure. I mean, there's a reason I have like a whole chapter at the end of Real Food for Pregnancy on postpartum and why it's, I think one of the most robust chapters in the book was because I was, I was in the thick of it as I was writing it. I love that chapter. I love just the focus on really, you know, healing and recovering and taking care of yourself and how important that is and how to do it so that you can kind of get back to your life a little faster if you're, you know, spending the time to replenish nutrients and eat a nourishing diet and let your body heal. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like talking about getting your brain power back. I mean, a lot of that is nutritional, you know, it's like your body does get depleted in pregnancy and during nursing. And so the more you can focus on those nutrient-dense foods, repleting your nutrient stores and healing properly, the, the better your brain power, you know, the better you can return to the things that you love to do and the better your whole mental health and all that is. Well, we can all use a boost in that area, I'm sure. So let's dive a little bit into the book now. Let's talk about Real Food for Pregnancy. One of the first things I wanted to talk about is this concept of nutritionism that you share in the book. And tell us why that isn't a great approach to any type of nutritional advice, not just prenatal, but anything. Yeah. So nutritionism, by the way, is like a a term that I believe Michael Pollan uh, first coined. And it refers to uh, the way that nutrition science as a whole tends to isolate specific nutrients and focus on their specific benefits or detriments. And then like we create rules around food that are only looking at this very singular aspect and not taking into account like what else that food might provide um, or the other nutrients that are in there that might be beneficial despite it having this one thing that a couple studies might say is bad okay Um, perfect example is like how you know, eggs were demonized for so long because we assumed that cholesterol was bad for us. Lo and behold, you start minimizing your intake of eggs and you've taken out like one of the most nutrient dense foods from your diet and you've pretty much guaranteed choline deficiency in a large part of the population. And that's really particularly detrimental to pregnant and breastfeeding women where it plays such an important role in the health of your placenta, your baby's brain development, and and all that. So that's just, you know, one example. There are many, many more examples of sort of the downfall of this whole concept that we can isolate specific nutrients and then decide which foods are good and bad just based on limited data. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, we, we sort of have this tendency to try to like fortify vitamins back into our food instead of just eating the foods that contain them in the first place or saying that, oh, we'll just supplement with this. Or you could just eat this food that contains this nutrient as well as all of these other synergistic nutrients that maybe we don't have all the data to support yet. I mean, we really, there's so much that we still don't know about nutrition science, particularly as it pertains to preconception and pregnancy. Absolutely. And that was actually, by the way, one of the hesitations in eating and even writing Real Food for Pregnancy was like, I don't have all the answers. And I'm like pretty straight up about about that. (laughs) Because the more you entrench yourself in research, the more you realize how many unanswered questions there are. Um, I tend to be a person who's just like continually questioning and questioning and questioning, which I think is why I end up finding such interesting studies. But 
I don't have it figured out. Uh, like all the nutrition researchers don't have it figured out. You know, choline, for example, like we didn't have a recommended intake for choline until 1998. And those, the data they based that on was adult men. It wasn't based on anything for pregnancy. Those were all estimates on how much a pregnant woman might need. And now we have data supplementing different amounts showing that we might need double the amount than they originally recommended. So, you know, you always have to look at things as like taking into account like what the limitations are and what the recommendations are. And then also for me, I like to look at, you know, what are or were traditional cultures doing as it pertains to preconception, pregnancy, lactation, eating, postpartum recovery foods, and what can we learn from them? Like, what are the nutrients that are in there? And when you start to sort of reverse engineer, taking into account this new data, like, how are we going to meet these nutrient needs from foods? It, it points to a lot of the practices that these traditional cultures have been using for a very long time. And so I think, you know, sometimes we get really bogged down by like science data, like gotta back everything with research. And I, obviously I'm all for that, but I also think we need to be really honest with ourselves about what we know and don't know. And maybe in the cases where we don't know yet what's optimal, then we might want to take into consideration what these cultures have been doing for centuries to help guarantee that they have robust and healthy babies. I mean, well before we had modern medical care to like jump in and, and save mothers and babies in difficult situations. Like what were they doing? Because they somehow did it <laughs> and it worked. So here we are in the U S with just a dismal maternal mortality rate. And we're clearly, you know, there's an, an area for improvement here. Definitely. Well, I think, you know, good science is really based off of observation, right? I mean, you design a scientific study based off of a particular observation. So why would we ignore this observation that we're making about healthy right. moms and healthy babies in traditional cultures, you know, instead of trying to design studies that isolate specific nutrients and foods, mm -hmm. why aren't we designing something that that's going to give us a little bit more data about what we really should be doing? Absolutely. Yeah. We're putting more trust in, in that, um, you know, the traditional things that they were doing in the past mm -hmm. instead of being like, nope, it's not evidence-based. So we need to design a huge study, which we can't really ethically do that with pregnancy. Right. So right. we're never going to have those studies anyway. That's, well, that's the big challenge is the, the ethical issue of it. So you're really limited on what things you can actually directly study in like a randomized controlled clinical trial. So right. it's, it's a challenge. All right. So Lily, your book is primarily about prenatal nutrition, um, but this is mastering your fertility. So we will also want to uh, ask you, like, is this uh, food, real food for pregnancy? Can it be applied to preconception period as well? Definitely. In fact, probably even more so than pregnancy, <laughs> because when you're in the preconception phase, like you're in a time period where A, your body is like not yet affected by symptoms of pregnancy, meaning like you don't have nausea and food aversions <laughs> that are getting in the way of eating really nutrient dense foods. You also have a chance to build up your nutrient stores before you conceive, which once you hit the first trimester and are 
pretty likely, just on a statistical basis, to face those food aversions and nausea, like you have something to fall back on. You know, you know you have nutrient reserves that are on standby to fill in the gaps when your diet isn't as as good as you would like it to be. Um, so it's it's huge. We have good data on you know improving egg quality and also you know dad counts to sperm quality as well, um, based on providing you know an adequate amount of various different types of nutrients. Right. Yeah. And we talk a lot about how in that first trimester and those first few weeks that there's a lot of epigenetic programming going on. And a lot of that is controlled by the nutrients that you have uh, stored up before you actually conceived. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If I always say like, if you have the luxury of planning ahead, because there are many pregnancies that are surprises and I don't want to discourage people from still trying to do their best, but if you have the luxury to plan ahead, I think it really helps to pay off. I mean, all the internal organs are formed within like the first eight weeks of pregnancy. Like the, the concern about neural tube defects, which is related to folate, choline, glycine, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, like that's very early in pregnancy. And so a, a lot of that is actually the risks of like the very serious types of like malformations or birth defects that that's actually reflective of pre pregnancy nutrient stores more so than like during pregnancy nutrient intake. So I don't want to dissuade people because there's still a lot of things that you can do during pregnancy to like optimize your nutrition, to reduce the risk of anemia, preterm birth, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, all that stuff. Um, But some of like the very fundamentals of growing a human and also just like reducing your risk of miscarriage um, that really does come down to preconception, which is I, I really don't think there's ever a bad time to start incorporating more real food, nutrient-dense foods into your diet. It's like, it's always good. <laughs> In fact, people are like, what do you eat now? Like, write a book on on postpartum or whatever. I'm like, I, I eat the same way that's in the Yeah, book. it's the same like, thing. Whether I'm pregnant or not, I eat the same thing. Like, what do I feed my kid? Like, the same thing that we eat. It's all the right. same thing. And I've been eating this way for like more than 15 years. It's all the same thing. This is what helped me stay fertile and get pregnant and have an uncomplicated pregnancy and recover well postpartum and have a kid who eats sardines and oysters and all the random non-toddler foods. Like it's all the same thing. And I don't think people like to hear that answer, but it's the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it makes it easier. Yeah. I mean, it does make it easier, but I think at the same time, people are like, oh, I actually should eat this way like my whole life. This isn't yeah. this isn't just for growing babies. Right. It's not a well, and, and dad too. I think it's important that, you know, we're not just talking about wannabe mothers and mothers and toddlers, you know, it's important for dad too. Absolutely. People need to get used to like eating this way as a lifestyle instead of, you know, treating it like a short-term thing just to achieve a goal. Mhm. Absolutely. And I think there's also some degree of like people get really perfectionist and controlling with food. And I I try to like shift the conversation away from that because I I don't think that's healthy, like physically or mentally for our bodies. Like I'm just about like, how can we get more micronutrients in you? How can you enjoy what you're eating? How can you eat mindfully? So like you're eating the right quantities and combinations of food that like make you feel well you know the signals your body sends you are are not random 
and they're not meaningless. They, they're there for a reason. So I can't guarantee that like everyone is going to need, for example, the same amount of carbohydrates. Like there's people who do well on high carb. There's people who do, do well on super low carb. There's a whole bunch of people who are somewhere in the middle. Like part of figuring out your sweet spot on nutrition is just listening to your body. And that's, that's an inconvenient thing in our modern world where people just want like a, a meal plan. Just like, tell me what to do. You know, it's like, well, it's not always that simple. Definitely. That's a really good point. So speaking of carbohydrate intake, um, your book does recommend a lower, moderate, lower to moderate carbohydrate intake during pregnancy. Um, can you tell us kind of why that is that you recommend that? Yeah. So part of that is based on all that I observed with gestational diabetes and what works best to manage blood sugar. And currently, I mean, we consider it gestational diabetes, but it can also, it's, it refers to any elevation in blood sugar that is identified in pregnancy, which means that could have been going on pre-pregnancy. And right now, like 50%, more than 50% of the adult U.S. population has some form of diabetes or pre-diabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. So if we have half of people coming into pregnancy with some sort of blood sugar issue, there's at least half of people that probably are not going to benefit from a diet that's 45 to 65% of calories from carbohydrates. So that's part of it. Another part of it is looking at the micronutrient levels. And when you start, again, like trying to reverse engineer a, a prenatal diet that provides optimal amounts of nutrients for reducing pregnancy complications and optimizing fetal brain development, for example, you tend to not find high concentrations of those foods, of those nutrients rather, in high carbohydrate foods. Like you're not going to find choline in high amounts in whole wheat. You don't find B12 in anything other than animal foods. You don't find DHA in any plant foods minus a microalgae supplement, you know, and yet these are the things that are so vital. And in fact, we do have data from actual studies showing that the greater the quantity of carbohydrates in the diet, particularly refined carbohydrates, so things made with white flour and white sugar um, mostly, you, that's the number one predictor of inadequate micronutrient intake during pregnancy. And right now our current guidelines, like, yeah, they promote whole grains, but they also say you can eat half your grains whole. And that's a high amount of refined carbohydrates if you actually follow that advice. So I think for the majority of people, if you're going to try to meet your nutrient needs from food alone, you're just not going to need nearly as much carbohydrates as the guidelines recommend. Particularly well, people, if you want to meet your protein needs. Like protein needs are higher than we previously thought in pregnancy. And so like that also dips into the percent of calories you can be getting from carbohydrates too. Yeah, definitely. Well, so we have this, like, we have this recommendation, this conventional recommendation for a minimum of, is it 175 grams per day of carbohydrate during pregnancy? That's considered like your bare minimum. And that's not necessarily a super evidence-based number, is it? It's, yeah, it's not. That was actually kind of the whole premise of even writing my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, was that, hey, you can actually do less and it's okay <laughs> and it's safe. Um, 
when you look at where that number came from, you see that it's all based on mathematical estimates. And it also comes from the assumption that as an adult, the like non-pregnant adult, you need a minimum of 100 grams of carbohydrates per day to like survive and like have proper brain function, which is just not true because in that same Institute of Medicine document, they contradict themselves in several places saying that dietary carbohydrate is the only non-essential macronutrient and you can <laughs> most definitely survive without dietary carbohydrate as long as you're consuming enough calories, meaning enough calories from fat and protein because your body has this magical thing called gluconeogenesis where it can make uh, all, pretty much all the glucose that your body requires um, from these other nutrient sources. So carbohydrate, carbohydrates as a whole are like a, they're a non-essential macronutrient. Um, however, people sometimes assume that I'm like, I recommend no carbs. And that's, that's also not true. Cause again, if we're going to look at this from a micronutrient perspective, meaning getting your vitamins and minerals and essential fatty acids and, and amino acids and all that, you actually do require some carbohydrates in your diet. And in my opinion, um, they just don't have to come from like the super high carb, like grains or large quantities of fruit or large quantities of potatoes. Like those foods can still fit in, but you get carbohydrates also in, you know, green beans and kale and carrots and berries and you know, even a full fat Greek yogurt, which is like as, as low carb as you're going to get in yogurt, there's still carbs in there. There's carbs in nuts and seeds. They're just within the matrix of a lot of micronutrients as well. So you don't see the big blood sugar excursion that you see when you're eating like a giant bowl of pasta, for example. Speaking of blood sugar control, you actually have a recent personal experience with a continuous glucose monitor. Is that right? Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So where do I start? I, I wrote about it on my blog. So it's like a, it's like an over 6,000 word article. It felt like I was writing another book kind of, but um, I got a continuous glucose monitor um, pretty much out of professional curiosity really to see what was going on because, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the standards that we have for diagnosing diabetes are imperfect. I'll just put it that way. Um, and are mm, maybe don't necessarily reflect like every possible way that like your blood sugar can be off. So I just wanted to see like what, like what's a baseline, like what's going on with my body when I eat food and the benefit, like regular, like my usual diet. I wasn't like tracking obsessively or trying to reach a certain outcome. I just wanted to get a baseline. Um, so with a continuous glucose monitor, unlike checking your blood sugar with finger sticks, you know, you have this little uh, sensor that's attached to your body. This one goes in the back of your arm and it monitors your blood sugar 24 seven around the clock. And then you can occasionally like scan it with a little reader device to check on your blood sugar numbers and see what happens. So, I mean, overall, I, I don't know what information you want to have on me on like what, 
what what I learned from the experiment, but I mean, for the most part, my blood sugar was very, very normal, um, eating the way I usually do, which is, I call it moderately low carb, because there's there's room for like an occasional piece of sourdough bread, and I'm not like, I don't omit fruit entirely, like fruit is part of my world, I sometimes have beans, like I'm, I'm not keto or anything. Um, and that seems to work really well for my blood sugar and really well for my body. Uh, but I did try out on the last day um, breakfast. That's actually maybe not ironically, but I wanted to test out the sample breakfast from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics sample meal plan for prenatal nutrition, which is um, oatmeal, milk, and berries. And the results from that had me quite surprised by how bad my blood sugar was after eating that. Um, so it, it, it essentially led me to do a lot more digging into the data on like, what do we know about what's truly normal for blood sugar? Because it's very clear that I don't have a blood sugar problem. Like I don't have prediabetes. I had some advanced lab work done several months before I did this CGM experiment, so my, you know, insulin resistance, measures of insulin resistance are, like, as perfect as they can be. My fasting insulin is, like, low and in a good range. And to see a blood sugar response into the prediabetic range, I mean, I, I spiked 100 points from eating oatmeal. And wow. it was a large bowl of oatmeal um, was pretty shocking to me. Because even my Thanksgiving dinner, like, I did this over Thanksgiving. Like, I was really not trying to, like prove anything by my timing of this. Um, and even my Thanksgiving dinner only spiked me like 50 points and that oatmeal spiked me a hundred points. So I think what it shows us is like, A, well for me, a lot of the observations I had around how I was feeling, like the mindful eating observations that is like pretty central to the way that I choose to eat on a day-to-day -day basis. A lot of that was corroborated by what I saw on my blood sugar responses. So yeah. when I did spike, I felt like crap. <laughs> and I have all, I've, I've kind of like known that and observed that over time. And that's, that's why I eat the way I do. Right. Um, so to go way off the plan, be like, oh, I'm going to eat this like pretty much pure carbohydrate breakfast, um, minus the teeny amount of protein you might get in the, in the milk or the trace amounts you get in the oatmeal. Um, I, I knew I was going to have a spike, but I didn't expect it to be that bad. And then what's also interesting is like I was reading, you know, continuous glucose monitoring studies in, um, in non-diabetic people. And in one of the studies, they gave people a test meal of cornflakes and milk and 80% of the participants spiked into the diabetic or pre-diabetic range. So I don't think my response is like uh, abnormal. I think it's just like some foods or combinations of foods, particularly just eating high carbohydrate foods by themselves without any fat or protein to go along with it, it's a mismatch for our physiology. And like, it just, that's all, that's all that I can conclude. It's a, it's a mismatch. It doesn't work well for our physiology. And if we want to make a, a dent in the massive spike in diabetes diagnoses, we need to stop recommending that people eat oatmeal and skim milk and juice for breakfast it, it leaves you feeling like crap for good reason because your blood sugar is completely dysregulated and clearly it's not working very well to prevent chronic disease
Yeah, absolutely. We had a whole episode on blood sugar talking exactly about exactly what that feels like to feel like crap when you yep. are not eating a carbohydrate um, intake that is well matched with your body. Right. But right. you, it's, it's kind of a testament to how entrenched these guidelines are in conventional nutrition because you got, you wrote about this, you wrote about your oatmeal experience and you got a ton of backlash on social media. Oh yeah. That. Well, everybody has an opinion. Um, so, you know, I had some people who were like, well, you're not low carb enough. So that's why you had blah, blah, blah happen. And then there's other people <laughs> who are like, well, you're now carbohydrate intolerant because you haven't been eating enough carbohydrates. And if you just eat more carbohydrates, you'll get better carbohydrate tolerance. I'm like, well, yeah, that's also been like proven in the data since the 1960s. Like you eat a bunch of carbohydrates before a glucose tolerance test and you'll pass with flying colors. If you don't, you'll fail. Like my response is pretty normal, but what we know about like insulin metabolism is there's no benefit to continually spiking your insulin multiple times a day, day in and day out for years. That is setting you up for metabolic dysregulation, type two diabetes, heart disease. It's, it's not good. So I'm not going to do that. Um, there were also people saying, you know, oh, well, it's just because you, you know, you just ate only, only carbohydrates by themselves at the meal. And I was like, well, that is the point of the experiment was to test out something that's recommended in our guidelines and see how it works for a metabolically healthy person. And it didn't work. Well, if you ate it with, you know, more fat and protein, then you wouldn't have had the spike okay, I probably would have had a lesser spike, which is something I talk about in the article. So a lot of people didn't read the full article, but um, typical, right? Um, but I'll have you know that oatmeal was like my breakfast of choice for at least two years. And I did it all the right ways. So it was organic steel cut oatmeal that was soaked overnight, all of like Sally Fallon nourishing traditions guidelines, yeah. and then cooked. And then with like, butter or coconut milk and then like nuts and seeds and then the only sweetener was berries you know so not adding a whole bunch of sugar to it for example like most people do um and adding fat and protein to it i still felt like garbage like i wasn't as hungry as early so i think probably had a lesser glycemic response but like i still feel bad so <laughs> i've tried incorporating oatmeal back into my life at various times over the years and it never feels good and I'm not trying to be like a human guinea pig. So I don't know if I ever wear a CGM again, I probably won't test out oatmeal with all the good fixings because I think we know the answer. Like it'll yeah. lessen the glycemic impact. Yes. This is why I talk about in all of my books and all over my articles online, the whole concept of no naked carbs. Um, at the same time, that's still going to spike my blood sugar significantly more than my usual breakfast which leaves me feeling energized and great all day long. So I'm just going to keep doing my usual breakfast, which is also like way higher in micronutrients than oatmeal. So like, I'm good, but you know, you get a CGM, you check your blood sugar with a glucometer, you see the response that happens in your body. Cause it might be different. Like if you're a high level athlete or somebody who's doing like CrossFit six days a week, you probably have way better carbohydrate tolerance than me and your body probably needs more and you might have a great response to oatmeal. So like, you know, 
test it for yourself. That was also kind of the point of the CGM articles that there's a lot of individual variation in the way we process different carbohydrates. And then you see the results, you decide what works. Like the end, the point is to personalize it. Which of course people didn't read, right? No, I think people read, you know, they picked and choose which parts of the article they wanted to read and then, you know, jump to conclusions. So, well, that's pretty typical on, uh, on subjects that tend to elicit very strong opinions from both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So just for the sake of, um, you know, talking thoroughly about this, what is a normal breakfast for you? You know, it'll vary day to day, but, um, most often, because I can't say I'm like somebody who always eats the same thing. Like I get way too bored with food to eat the same thing every day. It's why I'm like just a, just absolutely terrible at meal planning <laughs> because I'm like, I'm in the mood for this. Okay, we'll make this today. But most often a breakfast that keeps me really well satisfied is a couple of eggs, usually two, um, some sort of sauteed vegetables with it. So I usually saute the vegetables in like my cast iron skillet before I cook the eggs. So it's all one pan. Um, it might just be that I usually have black tea and cream alongside, or I might have a piece of sourdough bread with it. I might have some bacon or sausage with it. I might have, um, a piece of fruit with it, like half a grapefruit or some berries. Um, but the thing that is like, the constant is there's always like a significant source of protein and fat at my breakfast. If I don't get that in, I, I don't function well, whether or not there's going to be a lot of additional like carbohydrate sources coming in is like a, how I'm feeling and B like, am I going to be doing something really active that day? Like, are we going to be going out for a hike? Then like, I'm totally fine having some extra carbs in there. Like I'm, I know I'm going to need the energy I'm just going to be sitting at my desk for the day. Probably don't. (laughs) So it's a, it's a take it or leave it thing based on how I'm feeling for the day. All right. So I want to go into another recent controversy that has showed up on your social media quite a bit and in some research briefs that you've written and um, then talk about some of the nutrient concerns that are a part of that. So we're seeing a lot of backlash on your social media right now because you posted recently about B12 intake um, being low in vegetarian or vegan diets specifically and the impact of low B12 intake in mom on baby's brain development and nervous system health. So talk to us a little bit about some of the research around that, um, why specifically in your book you, you address this topic very thoroughly, um, talking about nutrients that we may be missing on a vegetarian or completely vegan diet, and why some of those are so important. So why don't we start with choline, because that one is kind of a, an unsung hero in preconception and prenatal nutrition, and then we'll talk about some of the others as well, including B12. Sure. So, um, and yes, the... Uh... I knew I was in for it when I tagged my vitamin, vitamin B12 and breast milk uh, research brief with vegan diet and vegan pregnancy. So, you know, I knew I was going to get backlash, but I was, yeah. I was uh, surprised by how willing people are to write off actual research. And This is one of the things that kind of frustrates me about our conventional guidelines is because they don't have 
in my opinion, a comprehensive view of the nutrient needs of pregnancy, because as I said, these are constantly changing based on new studies and our guidelines are pretty outdated at this point. Then they leave out nutrients that should be on their radar that are essential and that also might be lacking in a vegetarian or vegan diet. So B12 is like, it's kind of an easy one to like, everybody knows about it. More people are supplementing with it. It's a lot of people just sort of write it off because you can sort of out supplement it, but there are nutrients that you can't out supplement or people aren't aware enough to make the informed choice to supplement with, to replace a potential deficit in their diet. And, and those are the areas that I really try to highlight. Um, so to go into the, uh, the choline one for a bit. So choline is a nutrient in the B vitamin family that was named after all the B vitamins were already discovered. So it's not like vitamin B75 or something. It's just choline. And it works alongside B6, folate, B12, and glycine in all sorts of methylation reactions in your body, which are really important when you are growing a baby and like pretty much creating that baby's DNA from scratch that requires a lot of methylation. Um, choline is absolutely vital to brain development. And like I mentioned earlier in our interview, you know, the needs for choline are likely double what we had previously estimated are required for pregnancy. Um, it's also really important to maintain normal pl placental function to help shuttle nutrients from placenta to baby, including DHA, which is no surprise that pretty much all the food sources of DHA come with choline. <laughs> like egg yolks, for example. Mm -hmm. They have both DHA and choline. They're working synergistically together to optimize nutrient delivery. The challenge with choline on a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet that does not include adequate amounts of eggs is that eggs are the number one source in the diet. Second to that is liver, which like, hey, I'm a big fan of liver, but almost nobody else is. So that's I probably am not going to contribute much. Yeah, nope. Are, are you all, you're also a fan of liver? I am also a fan of liver. I'm a fan of traditional foods. I've found ways to make it taste good and incorporate it into my diet. But I, I get a lot of very skeptical looks yeah. when I talk about liver. Well, it's an acquired taste and it's also a self-limiting food. It would be impossible for me to overeat liver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's so rich and flavorful and nutrient dense, like you're not going to overeat it. So all these concerns over liver are so funny because I'm like, but have you actually met somebody who's overeaten liver? Like, no, because they don't exist. Um, nonetheless, even if you were to be like a big fan of liver, you're not going to meet all your choline needs from liver alone. You right. really end up meeting it primarily from eggs. So like egg eaters have on average double the intake of choline compared to non egg eaters. Um, the challenges that are, you know, the conventional guidelines do mention choline, but they don't take it seriously, it seems, because in the omnivorous meal plan they have from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the only eggs included are in low-fat mayonnaise <laughs> on their turkey sandwich at lunch. And of course, it's like this minuscule amount because like, oh, fat, you know. 
Um, <laughs> and then you look at the, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics also has like a vegetarian nutrition practice group and they have like a, a handout on vegetarian pregnancy, which you can easily get online. And they have a sample meal plan for a, a vegan, supposedly well-balanced vegan meal plan. And first of all, choline isn't mentioned as a nutrient of concern on their handout at all. And of course, because it's vegan, it doesn't have eggs in it. And it is also deficient in choline. And so it really becomes a matter of if you're not eating eggs, you need to have a choline supplement, like period. Yes, It's very obvious. And when you look at the places that we're getting choline in the diet, you know, in the Instagram post research brief on choline and pregnancy, um, I talk about some of the plant sources, but there are also animal sources other than eggs and liver that I, that I don't mention on there. And really Mm -hmm. the major sources of choline that we're getting in the diet, aside from eggs, which are an absolute outstanding number one, um, is dairy products, meat, poultry, and fish. It's, it's all animal products. And so it, it just brings up a very uncomfortable thing for people who are opposed to the consumption of animal products because you are going to be deficient in yet another nutrient, which requires yet another supplement and yet another thing for people to have on their radar. And currently, the latest study I was reading was that 6% of OBGYNs even discuss choline with their clients. I mean, or prenatal that. nutrition at all. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, or that. Like, yeah, maybe they don't even ask you if you're taking a prenatal vitamin. I mean, come on. Um, but I've spoken at medical conferences, and I specifically, when I bring up choline, I actually ask the audience to raise their hand if they've heard of choline before. And every single time, less than half of the audience raises their hand. Oh my gosh. And I guarantee you, like I'm seeing a higher percent than if I was speaking to only doctors. Like a lot of times I'm speaking to dietitians and nutritionists. And sometimes this is the first time even dietitians have heard of choline because it is not emphasized in our training. I just went back to my like textbook on nutrition, like one of the basic ones that I had from my schooling. And I'm reading the chapter on pregnancy nutrition. I was just rolling my eyes the entire time. They don't talk about choline. They have like a chart for um, sources of folate and it's all fortified grains. I mean, it's just, it's garbage information. It's not up to date at all based on the data. And this is really unfortunate because we have these people coming out of school, you know, here's my credential. They say they specialize in prenatal nutrition. Maybe they've worked at like WIC for a year or something. And so they think they know everything and they're giving out bad information that honestly, I believe can be dangerous. Like if you want to go into the example of B12, like if if you end up with a mother who's deficient in nutrients, her baby ends up deficient in nutrients, her breast milk ends up deficient in nutrients. And some of these nutrients are so important to provide in this very critical window of embryonic and fetal development and early childhood through the first two years that if you don't provide them, you end up with lifelong deficits in brain function that can't be reversed even when you start introducing those nutrients back into the diet. That to me is very concerning. And if we have a whole group of practitioners I mean, most of the backlash I got on that um, B12 post 
was from vegan dietitians whose whole practice is about pregnancy and infant nutrition. Now, I haven't had any of them comment on my choline post yet. Granted, <laughs> I didn't put vegan diet at the top of it because I'm talking about more than a vegan diet. Like omnivores need to think about this too, of course. Right. But this one is a little more irrefutable because not everybody's thinking about supplementation. So I will be very curious to observe on some of these feeds if they start recommending choline supplements. And you know what? I hope they do because a lot of these things can be addressed through supplementation and should be. We just have to be talking about it and not pretending like, you know, you're always going to be meeting your nutrient needs eating a vegan diet. No, you're not. Well, and I, and not. we the know that. Yeah. Very, I, I, on that. There's enough data to, to suggest that. And I, I have talked to people who are recommending or currently eating a vegetarian or vegan diet and they understand that. And so they're like really up on supplementing, I guess for me personally, I just kind of feel like, why would you want to take a supplement when clearly this type of a diet isn't like a strictly vegan diet really isn't compatible with our physiology or our ability to reproduce if it doesn't include some of these nutrients that we need to build healthy babies and to support our fertility. And so, you know, I'm, I'm all for people who are committed to that lifestyle, at least being educated and informed and supplementing where they're missing. But, you know, just kind of begs exactly. the question, if we can't get it from food, is that really a diet that is compatible with us as humans? I, I agree with that sentiment completely. And that's also the reason why, you know, I'm getting all like worked up as we're talking this interview, but like the reason that I wrote about vegetarian nutrients of concern in the way that I did in the book, which was very, very carefully, I, I painstakingly wrote and researched that section so that somebody who's coming from a place of eating a vegetarian or a vegan diet, if they've made it that far through the book, if they went through the liver <laughs> section, <laughs> um, so they wouldn't feel attacked. Because guess what? I've been vegetarian before too. I have friends and loved ones who are vegan. I understand the animal rights issue, the ethical issue, the environmental issue, like all of the issues that they bring to the table, I get like deep to my core, like many, many of my family members have been or are vegetarian or vegan, including myself. So I get it. And this is why it's not optimal. This is what can be missing. This is the consequence if you don't correct this. These are the areas that we don't know if we can out supplement. These are the areas where the choline stuff as of 2018, we just learned that maybe the needs for choline are double and that optimizes infant brain function and their reaction time. Far better, significantly better than the kids who are provided with even more than the adequate level. Like the control group was supplemented yeah. with more than the current recommendation. I and love that. Every study. single time point that they tested infants, the infants who were in the group that received double the choline performed better. So it's not just about like, can you carry a pregnancy to term and have a baby with like 10 fingers and 10 toes? Like I'm thinking about long-term function. Like are your epigenetic setups that you're going to avoid diabetes and obesity and heart disease and cancer? 
are you set up that your brain is going to be well developed so you're like fully functional and not facing learning deficits and delays or issues with your vision for example choline is important for vision development as is dha you know i want to make sure that your health is optimized and that's that's my primary goal uh, as a mother and so it just gets very very tricky i mean i tried to work out all the things that you would need to supplement all the areas that you would need to focus on in your diet and there's a whole section on tips to optimize a vegetarian diet in pregnancy i do think a vegetarian diet is i think it's possible to meet the nutrient needs on a vegetarian diet especially one that emphasizes eggs in particular yeah it is not excessively low fat and all of that and has some careful supplementation planned out but a vegan diet gets very very tricky and for me it is it is an issue of professional ethics i can't given what i don't know about prenatal nutrition given that we're still identifying what's optimal i can't guarantee that this is going to give you the best pregnancy outcome so i personally can't recommend it to you without going through all of these potential risks and it's a matter of informed consent you can take my advice or you cannot take my advice but if you're going to choose a vegan diet this is what you need to be thinking about and these are the things you need to supplement with and we don't know if that's going to be enough but based on the evidence right now this is the best that we can do and that's i don't understand why that ends up being so controversial for people <laughs> but that i mean that's the truth we can't just like pretend that it's all rainbows and sunshine and everything is going to be fine like sorry we have multiple dozens of case studies on severe vitamin b12 deficiency in infants of vegan mothers now people argue that well they just needed to supplement more or whatever what's the reality most people aren't supplementing some of these studies mothers were supplementing with the rda which is not enough yep how many mothers continue supplementing during breastfeeding almost none so you just need to really harp on the supplementing with higher amounts consistently the entire pregnancy supplementing with high amounts consistently the entire time you're nursing you know and that's only addressing just vitamin b12 so that leaves a whole gaping wound for things like glycine where all the supplemental glycine as far as i know is sourced from collagen which is animal sourced so right. like, oh, what are you going to do um it's a problem and if you saw the you know i get a lot of trolls but i also get literally dozens of messages each week from people who are former vegetarians and vegans a lot of them who have had serious fertility struggles i mean some people who have been struggling with their fertility for like 10 years and have gone through multiple rounds of IVF and they follow my approach for like three, four months and they conceive their rainbow baby. I mean, and then I hear about the one, you know, the comparisons of, oh, I was vegetarian my past pregnancy and this one I'm not. And last time, like my perineum didn't heal for like eight months and I had to get special surgery to fix it. Well, that's because you weren't consuming collagen like right. required to heal those tissues why does every traditional culture across the globe recommend high collagen foods during the postpartum period and for healing 
I mean, for good reason, your collagen turnover is like the craziest it's ever going to be in your entire life during pregnancy and postpartum. They somehow knew, they probably observed, hey, you know what? When mamas aren't doing this, when they're not doing their bone broth, when they're not doing their beef stew, when they're not in China doing their pig trotter soup, they don't heal as well. We should probably go back to doing what we did for this other person who healed really well and see what happens. This is the stuff that like, yes, you have all these observations and it's all anecdotal data, and, but you also have very clear physiological and biochemical basis for why they observed what they did. Yeah, we definitely have that. I, I think there's, there's plenty of, of observable data out there to support an approach like that. And I just, I don't understand why we can't embrace that a little bit more and study it a little bit differently in nutrition and, you know, approach it differently in the guidelines. So let's talk a little bit more about some of these like really nutrient dense healing type of foods that we need. I think glycine is a great thing to talk about because even omnivorous eaters are often deficient in glycine because we eat a lot of muscle meat. We don't tend to focus on bone broth or meat on the bone or, you know, Absolutely. foods that, that leach out all of that beautiful connective tissue. Um, talk a little bit about some of those foods and, and why they're so wonderful and important and why we need glycine specifically. Yeah, I, I love the topic of glycine. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's one of the biggest and most disappointing oversights in our conventional guidelines that they don't even mention this amino acid. But from a you know biochemistry perspective, this amino acid is one that outside of pregnancy, they don't consider it as an essential amino acid because your body can manufacture it from other amino acids. So it's something that they're like, eh, you don't really have to get it from your diet. That actually shifts during pregnancy and it becomes conditionally essential meaning you do have to get it from your diet to obtain enough glycine for the basic functions that it performs in your body, many of which are related to connective tissue turnover, um, related to the increase in collagen needs. I mean, where you get glycine from foods is in the bone, skin, and connective tissue of animal foods. That's where you find it in the highest concentrations by far. And you need those same amino acids that are in the bone, skin, and connective tissues to grow the bone, skin, and connective tissues of your baby. And for your own bone, skin, and connective tissues to adapt to pregnancy, which by the way is like a massive adaptation. Like you have to think about how big the uterus grows during pregnancy. The amount of collagen it contains at the end of pregnancy is 800% more than it was pre-pregnancy. Your ligaments have changed and stretched to allow your belly to grow, to allow your pelvic floor to be supple enough to birth a baby vaginally. There's a lot of things going on in your body. Your skin is stretching. Like if you want to avoid stretch marks, you want to be providing the amino acids that are there to allow your skin to have the elasticity to stretch and then go back postpartum to like not being super, super saggy skin, like that's possible. And that is collagen. Collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body by far. And a third of collagen is, is from the amino acid glycine. So this is why glycine is awesome. 
you get glycine, like I said, from the bone, skin, and connective tissue of animal foods. So in real terms, you're looking at bone broth, meat that's cooked on the bone. There's a bone there, but there's also connective tissue that is connecting it to the bone. And the connective tissue tends to melt down with slow cooking. So you think of like a really tough, like bone-in beef roast. Like that's an awful thing to try to cook on the barbecue, but it's a really delicious thing to cook in your slow cooker. Um, it's also in the skin. So you think of like chicharrones, like the, you know, fried pork skin or um, the skin on your like turkey or chicken legs, that's going to be a really rich source of glycine as well. And then of course, like now collagen and gelatin supplements are like super popular. So that's like a, you know, an, another place to get it. But before we had that commercial option, what you see from traditional cultures is they didn't waste any parts of the animal. And that includes the skin and the bones and all the tough cuts of meat. They didn't like get to a tough cut of meat and then be like, oh, this is inedible. Like, no, you learn how to make it edible and you cook it. Um, and that's really where you're helping to get that correct balance of glycine to your other amino acids is, is eating nose to tail like we used to. Yeah. And I wanted to make a note that a lot of us are really worried about the fat that's in the skin. And so we remove the skin and we don't eat it. That's what we were taught from right yep. the seventies, eighties, the fat is bad. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, that, that's, a, that was just a terrible mistake in our guidelines to recommend low fat. Um, we now know it was certainly unfairly vilified and provides many important nutrients other than just the fat itself. But like you said, you know, if you're taking the skin off of your chicken, you're not only removing the fat, you're removing the primary source of glycine from that food. If you take the fat out of your dairy products, you're removing the vitamins A, D, E, and K from it, as well as the CLA, a special type of fat that seems to have some, some metabolic benefits in our body. So it gets really tricky the more we start demonizing fat because you also start removing a lot of micronutrients and other difficult to source nutrients from the diet. Not to mention it's just, it's been completely disproven that saturated fat has any bearing on your risk for heart disease. <laughs> so that, that was really like the whole reason that they um, started recommending people limit their intake of saturated fat. And that's been thoroughly debunked. I wish that was more accepted. You know, yeah. I, I think there's so much data out there and yet we still see so many, um, you know, conventional nutrition authorities telling us that this is still a nutrient of concern, that we still need to be limiting this. And then, it, you know, it kind of brings us back to our nutritionism discussion. We take the fat out, we take all the vitamins out, and then we just say, take a supplement or fortify it. I know. That's, it's very disappointing. Not to mention, you start taking the fat out of real food, and then what fats do they tell you to eat more of? Well, they tell you to eat the fats that they have industrial, industrially produced from monocropped soy, corn, and canola, <laughs> which unfortunately, A, was not a part of our traditional diets, at least not in 
large quantity. Like the fats we were consuming traditionally are the ones that you can easily render or squeeze out of foods. Like you can squeeze an olive, press an olive and get oil out of it. You can't do that with a soybean. You have to put it through this extensive modern industrial processing, deodorizing, this whole bleaching to make it edible. And unfortunately, it's actually really unhealthy for us as well. This whole demonization of saturated fat in favor of vegetable oils has been a big disaster. You start increasing the amount of vegetable oils in the diet and you completely throw off the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 fats. And that actually is predictive of placental dysfunction, preterm birth, um, improper incorporation of DHA into the brain of the developing baby. It's, it's a big problem. We really need to take a step back and be like, what have we done in recommending that people ditch their traditional fats in favor of these industrially processed seed oils? It's, the results have not been good. So what oils would you say, like the top three oils to cook with? Well, I, I would actually say that I wouldn't necessarily cook with oils, like oils implies that they're liquid. The fats that are solid at room temperature are actually the most stable and least likely to be damaged by the heat of the cooking process. So the fat that you render from animal foods are fabulous, pork fat, beef fat, duck fat, um, the fat you render from chicken, um, dairy fat like butter and ghee would be great. Um, as far as cooking, probably coconut oil would be one of your best options, again, because it's solid at room temperature. But if you're not cooking at super high heat, then olive oil, avocado oil um, would be good options as well. Oh, that's such a good list. All right. And then we also wanted to uh, address the difference between pasture raised versus conventional and why there's such a nutrient difference in those two types of foods. Yeah, so pasture raised, or some people refer to it as grass-fed, refers to, you know, the way the animals were raised and, and what they ate during their life. If you raise ruminants like cows on pasture, the primarily grass, which is the diet that they're like genetically meant to eat um, versus conventionally raised cattle are typically raised in like a confined feedlot and fed corn and soy and other processed grain products, um, essentially like a, a high carbohydrate, unnatural diet for their species. The difference that you get in the quality of meat is significant. You get a shift in the quality and quantity of fat. So just like when you feed humans too many carbohydrates, we get fat. The same thing happens when you feed grains to cows. They just accumulate a lot more fat. They're also accumulating more of those omega-6 fats because that's what's in their diet versus grass-fed beef as a whole accumulate less fat. They're just metabolically healthier because they're being fed what they're meant to be fed. So they uh, gain the appropriate amount of fat. And they also tend to have more omega-3 fats um, as opposed to omega-6s because they're converting what they're getting from the grass. 
they also have um, grass-fed tends to have higher levels of certain vitamins like vitamins A and vitamins E. Um, you'll also see higher levels of vitamin D if they're out on pasture in the sun because just like humans, they make vitamin D from sun exposure. So you just see a, a healthier nutritional profile as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're probably going to have to wrap it up here pretty soon. I feel like I could just talk to you for an entire day about all the things in your book. I just want to nerd out with you over like every amazing research study that's on these specific nutrients that I just absolutely devoured when I read your book. We might have to have you back on the podcast to talk through all that nerdy science because I just loved it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to come back. So I think to wrap up, we'd like to hear from you. You know, we're kind of talking primarily to the preconception crowd, the fertility crowd. Some of our, some of our listeners are struggling with kind of chronic conditions that can affect fertility. I guess what would be like your, your top three pieces of advice for how to start transitioning to a healthier lifestyle, kind of this way of eating and living that we've been talking about? So one of the pieces of advice that has pretty much been central in my nutrition practice for years is working on breakfast, which is kind of been an uncool topic because everybody is in this like intermittent fasting thing <laughs> right now. But one of the biggest things I see with clients I guess I'll say if you're a breakfast eater, because I want to leave room for the people who feel well doing intermittent fasting. But if you're a breakfast eater, like that can make or break your diet quality, your hormone balance, your blood sugar balance for the entire day. And the, my best, that's, that's almost always a place that I focus first. I would do like a, you know, food record with some, somebody or like a 24 hour recall of what they eat. And it's like all of the issues that people are facing later in the day, like the 2 to 3 p.m. slump, the cravings for a donut at 10 a.m., the like excessive snacking after dinner, like it can all be traced back to something going awry with breakfast. <laughs> so I really recommend people get enough fat and protein at breakfast to keep you satisfied for at least three hours. If you're getting hungry within three hours of breakfast, now I'll give pregnancy as an exception. If you're pregnant, like you're probably going to be a lot more hungry. So just eat. But outside of pregnancy, if you're noticing you're getting really hungry, craving carbohydrates or caffeine pretty soon after eating your breakfast, it's probably a sign that there was something off probably too many carbohydrates, probably not enough protein, probably not enough fat. And your breakfast can look many different ways. Of course, I'm partial to eggs because they're so fabulous, but it might be, you know, focused on Greek yogurt or you might have, you know, some other like leftover dinner or something for, for your meal, but just try to get some fat and protein in the morning. It'll really make a difference. Um, another thing, I, I think you just kind of have to harp on this because we talked about it so much. Um, would be to incorporate more nutrient-dense foods into your diet so you can really build up your nutrient stores. Um, so of course, eggs with the yolks are on that list. Those glycine-rich foods that we talked about are on the list. Liver, they should look at your, your tips for 
liver or check out my books where I talk about hidden liver, um, find a way to work that in, even if it's in like a tiny quantity, like once a month, it's surprising how much incorporating this one food, even in small amounts, seems to make a big difference in people's health. Um, and then finally, I would say, try not to get like too bogged down by all the numbers and all, all the things you should be doing and all the, like, it's really easy to get overwhelmed in the nutrition world with like having to do everything perfectly. I think it's so much more beneficial for our bodies as a whole to place more emphasis on the mindful eating aspect. So how you're eating, how you're feeling before, during, and after eating, because your physiology may be totally different than whatever nutrition guru's book you're reading nutrition <laughs> needs. And you, you might do well with something very different than somebody else. And if you listen to your body, it won't lead you astray. It, like it's always talking to us for a very specific reason. We just aren't very tuned into listening these days. Very true. That is absolutely fantastic advice. And those things feel very doable. I think for somebody that might be a little bit new um, to this way of eating and living and being in their body. So thank you so much for that. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up here for today. Lily, thank you so much for being with us today. It was a fabulous experience getting to interview you and I can't wait to have you back to dig into all the science. So you can find Lily on her website at lilynicholsrdn.com. You can also find her on her Instagram, which is fabulous. She has a ton of just research briefs and great food pictures and um, her stories are fabulous. So she's at lilynicholsrdn. And then we will also link to um, her book, Real Food for Pregnancy. And you can find the other book as well, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, both on Amazon. And they're absolutely fabulous. Real Food for Pregnancy is probably our favorite nutrition resource to recommend to any woman um, in the preconception or prenatal period. So I think that's going to do it for today. Thank you so much, Lily. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're going to wrap things up for this week. Uh, we do want to remind you about our free fertility recovery guide. This is going to provide you five foundational steps to get you started with healing chronic symptoms and reclaiming your fertility. And you can get that free download by clicking the link in the description notes. And then we also wanted to let you know that we still have our Tiny Feet Fertility Assessment. This is an online assessment that you and your partner can take and questionnaire, and it's going to help you get started with preparing for pregnancy. So you take a questionnaire and then you get a personalized and actionable steps to start implementing right away. And you can find the link to that assessment in the podcast description as well. Or you can head over to our website at tinyfeet.co, that's T-I-N-Y-F-E-E-T dot C-O to learn more about the assessment. And please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and feel free to drop us a rating or a review if you liked this episode and we'll see you next week.